Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Well, here we are week two in our Revelation study. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the last book of the Bible. We are finishing chapter one. We've made it, right? Nothing bad happened. This is good, right? Some people heard we're going into Revelation. They thought, all right, this is it. This is when it's all going to, all hell is literally going to break loose. (laughs) That's any Sunday here. Why? We don't have to be in Revelation for that, right? Some of you have been here for a while. You know what I'm talking about. So we are starting in verse nine, and we're going to read to the rest of the chapter one. So he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. That's why we called this series Letter from Patmos. This is where John is writing from. And and he's on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so here we have John writing, and this is kind of that first part of the revelation that he has given. And we see in in verse 19 actually gives us an outline of the entire book. And so if you have your study guide, there is a passage outline that breaks down each passage. If you were to take that section out of every passage that we have, you would have a whole outline of the book. And that is the same outline that we're using. The big main heading lines of breaking the book down are talking about those things that you have seen seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. And so right now, John is writing the things that he has seen. 
And so that's even the title of our message, The Things You Have Seen. And so John is writing to Christians that are in the midst of persecution and trouble and suffering and affliction. And he uses the word here, tribulation. And don't get tripped up on this because a lot of times we see that and we immediately go to the great tribulation, that seven-year period that we'll talk about later in our study of the book. But we see that word, and a lot of times we go immediately to that, and that's not what John's really referencing right here. He's used this word in other ways, even in his gospel, you know, in John 16, In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have affliction. You will have suffering. But take heart. What's Jesus say? I've overcome the world. You know, it's almost like um, there's, a, there's a point in our uh, American history where there was something called the Great Depression, Now, the things that made up the Great Depression, there's people that still suffer uh, through some of those things that were the pinnacle during the Great Depression, but it was speaking specifically of that time in history. And it's the same thing here. There's going to be tribulation and affliction, and that is different than the Great Tribulation, which Jesus will reference in Revelation 2 and Revelation 7. And so John is writing to Christians that are in persecution and affliction, and he partners with them. He lets them know, like, we're in this together. And I love that, because if you ever go to a church where the pastor tries to alienate and platforms himself over the sea of sinners that stand before him, that's a red flag. I'm the chief sinner. I'll go toe-to-toe with any of you dirty, rotten sinners. I'm far worse. I'm far worse. We are literally in this together. And so he says, I'm partnering with you in the tribulation, in the kingdom, this patient endurance that are in Jesus. Understand the affliction, the suffering, the tribulation that you are walking through. Do not remove Christ from the equation. That for us, not just in revelation, but in our lives, we need to stay Christ-centered even when we think things aren't going our way. When I feel like our world is just falling apart, we get to fellowship with one another and we fellowship in suffering. What greater thing that God has for us than to suffer for him? Now, if you're suffering because you made some stupid decisions, you're just being stupid. But if you are suffering for the cause of Christ, what John is talking about, he's on Patmos, which was an island that they would send prisoners to work in quarries, and and it was a punishment to him. He goes, I'm there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's suffering for the sake of Christ. Our lives will have that. A lot of times we look at the suffering, the persecution that we will endure because of our faith in Jesus, and a lot of times we'll struggle and think, Lord, take this from me. Understand what we're asking when we say that. Because God will use suffering, affliction, persecution, what to bring about Christ-likeness in our lives. So when we ask the Lord to take suffering from our lives, we're telling him, hey, take away the very thing that you are using to try to create me to be in your image. What we're saying is I really don't want to be like you, Jesus. I just want a comfortable life. I just want everything to go my way. Like that old Frank Sinatra song, I want to do life my way. And Jesus will allow that. And if he didn't love you, he would give you the desire, everything on your heart. Like, like a parent, if you, if you don't love your kids, give them everything that they want. The greatest thing that we can do as parents is to tell our kids, no, 
to discipline. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. And he's going to use any kind of suffering and persecution, any kind of affliction that we are walking in. What? To bring about Christ-likeness in our own lives. And so understand the difference between just tribulations and the great tribulation. And obviously, as we continue our study in Revelation, we'll see that. And so John is on this island in affliction, and he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, verse 10 tells us. And that's a very unique thing, in the Spirit. It's a, it's a unique spiritual experience that I think is very specific to John. It's something different than us just walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. This is something very unique because John uses this term four times in Revelation. Once here in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 17, and chapter 21. And it marks off the major sections of this revelation that John received. Knowing that it's not something that he just kind of came up on his own, but he was in the Spirit and the Lord gave it to him. He was in the Spirit and the Lord gave it to him. And the Lord looks at him and he says, write these things down. So he hears, and this is kind of a unique thing that we'll see repeated through the book. He will hear he will describe what he hears, and then he turns to see it, and then he'll describe what he saw. And a lot of times you'll see a little bit of difference in those, the thing or what he hears, and then what he turns and sees. And so he hears this trumpet telling him to write what you see in a book and send it to these seven churches. There's going to be 12 times through the book of Revelation that he's going to be told to write down what you see. And I love that because we're kind of stubborn especially us guys. We don't even know how to applaud the ladies in our lives. Oh, yeah, you're getting digged at for that one. If the Lord never would have told John, I don't think he ever would have wrote it down. And I think he tells them to write it down. Why? Because this revelation is not just for you, but for the church. It is for the body. And he goes, I want you to write down what you see in a book, and you're going to send it to these seven churches. And again, there's kind of some different interpretation of what these seven churches are. What do they represent? Some are symbolic. Sometimes we get a little allegorical. But let's talk through the different ideas of what these seven churches are. One thought is that this letter, this from Patmos, this letter of Revelation was only written to these seven churches, that everything about Revelation is past tense, and it means nothing for us today, that all of the events are done. This is called the preterist view. We talked about it a little bit last week. The problem with that view, meaning that all of this in its entirety being past tense is, where's the resurrection? What about the return of the Lord? It denies that. And so there's some, some serious heresy that would go on if you only hold to that view. And so John is writing, and I do think that there is something for these churches in his time that he's overseeing these seven that he needs to write to. That there's some serious issues that we need to address, just like Paul would. And he wrote to the church in Ephesus. He wrote to the church in Philippi. He wrote to the church in Corinth. That there are some things that are going on that he wrote specifically for that congregation in his day, but it's also written to the church, capital C, that is even not just in that culture in that time, but even for us today. Another view is, and this is, I'm quoting this because I don't use words like this, 
But the seven churches represent the seven epochs. Yeah, that's a word I use all the time. Seven epochs of church age, which means each church that we describe here speaks of a period of church history chronologically and consecutively. So we're not talking about literal churches that are going on in this time. We're not talking about even churches today. But he would say that all of church history could be cut up into seven segments which again, that's very hard to find when we go from one to the next. And each one, so if we talk about Ephesus, that's actually just referencing the first part of church history. And then Smyrna would be the second part of church history, right? And, and a lot of people say that, yeah, we're already in the seventh, which doesn't work out well because that's Laodicea, where we love John 3.16. We know that one, but Revelation 3.16 I will spit you out of my mouth is the description that he gives to Laodicea. And so that those that hold to this seven epochs of the church age would say that we are the church of Laodicea where we are lukewarm and God just wants to spit us out of his mouth. Yeah, see, that was happening right there. Half of you jumped and the other ones gave your life to the Lord right there. Be like, I repent. I believe we need to read and study Revelation just as we would Romans just as we would Philippians. It was written for the whole church. Now, were there things that John needed to specifically say to those individual seven churches? Absolutely. And is there some of those things that he said to them that we need to hear? Absolutely. And so we're going to read it just like any other letter that was written to the church that God, through his Holy Spirit, is speaking to us this morning. And so John starts writing down everything that he sees, and he hears that trumpet, and when he turns, he sees a vision. And this is the vision of Jesus. And, and kind of the overarching theme here is that this vision that John sees, it resembles a priest, even in his outfit and what he's doing, it resembles a priest that's ministering in the tabernacle or the temple, which for us, we would have very little context of that. But to a Jewish audience, they would know and understand a lot of these symbols. Because this, this uh, description that we're going to have of this son of man, you're going to hear a lot of his eyes were like or his feet were like. And so a lot of symbolism, but he's writing in a very poetic way, not just for our intellectual understanding, but we write poetry to try to stir up the emotional response so when he gets done with his description, we all should have a little bit of Revelation 117 in our response, that when we see him, we fall at his feet, though dead. And so understanding the fullness of Jesus. Now think about John. Think about John. He's on the island of Patmos. He has outlived all the other apostles. He has been through severe persecution. There's one historical account that one of the Roman emperors threw him into a pot of boiling oil in one of those Colosseum-style areas because they just wanted to kill Christians for the fun of it. And he survived. And half of the audience give their life to the Lord because the miracle in John not being killed. And so that's why he's banished to the island of Patmos. John, who walked with the Lord and saw Jesus crucified, he was the one apostle that stayed at the cross with the mother of Jesus, where the rest of them deserted him. He saw him at the transfiguration, and he sees him in the ascension. That's the last time he saw Jesus. And one by one, walking through the early church, 
the rest of the apostles are killed. You know, he's, he's probably sitting here thinking of Peter. Oh, you remember when Peter was walking on water and thought he was all that and started to sink and, and all these memories. And one by one, he's probably getting reports like, hey, John, did you hear? Thomas, yeah, he was speared. He was killed. Oh, now we're down to nine. And then did you hear about, so, and then he was killed. And I almost wonder if John was on the island of Patmos thinking, Lord, did you forget about me? <laughs> Like, is, is my life not worthy to be laid down for you like the rest of them? Like, am I doing something wrong? But if you remember a little bit of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is speaking to Peter, Jesus tells Peter what kind of death he is going to endure. And Peter looks at John and says, well, yeah, what about him? And he says, if he lives on forever, what's that to you? And so in the early church, there was a lot of people that believed that Jesus would return before John would die. So John gets a little sick, gets a fever, be like, it's happening soon. Here we go. He's got a little vomiting diarrhea. This could be any day. We're getting excited about it. Did you hear? John's sick. This is going to be good. Jesus is coming back. And so he's on this island by himself. And the last visual that he had of Jesus is when Jesus ascended into heaven. And then, and then he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he turns from this vision, and this is what he sees. There's seven golden lampstands. It's not a menorah where there's like one trunk with branches off of it so that there's seven candlestick holders. These are seven individual lampstands. You know, our modern would be like a floor lamp, right? A little stand and a light on top of it. He sees seven of these. And he says, and then there's one in the midst of it like a son of man, which takes us back to Daniel 7, which is Jesus's favorite reference of himself in his earthly ministry. He called himself the son of man. And so John is seeing that. And then the description, he has a long robe and a golden sash, which signifies rank and dignity. You know, somebody very dignified would wear a long robe. The working class would wear a short robe in this culture. So he has a very long, nice flowing robe, shows a lot of rank and dignity. And it's also the clothing of messengers that even points us. You can go to Daniel 10.5 for that. And then it says that Jesus, he has this white hair like snow, and that's a reference to wisdom and purity. I don't know what that means for me, but for Jesus, it's wisdom and purity, and it shows an equality of Jesus with the Father. Because again, if you go back to Daniel 7, you will see a description of the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. And there's going to be given a description of that. And if you compare that to what we see here of Jesus, it's going to almost sound like, is this the same person? And it's not. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God in three persons, the triune God. But this equal kind of description is showing this equality of Jesus with the Father. So even in Revelation, even in this Revelation, God is revealing to John that Jesus is absolutely co-eternal in essence, in character with God. Jesus is God. His eyes were a flame of fire that is this piercing judgment and this omniscient understanding. It's going to be key. We'll come back to that. His feet are like burnished bronze, which was the strongest metal in this time. So it shows purity, strength, stability. His voice is the roar of many waters. Shows that he's very authoritative, powerful, irresistible. There was one time when uh, I was a young dad and my older two were uh, little pipsqueaks running around the church foyer, somewhere else, not here. And it was kind of, you know, how a good foyer can get, gets a little roaring, a little louder. And I was trying to get my kids' attention because they were just right on that verge 
of almost catching a foot right to the teeth. You know what I mean? No, I'm serious. No. They were just on the verge of almost getting out of hand, and I needed to get their attention. So I tried to say their name. No response, because I don't think they could hear me. No disobedience. I get it. And so I say their name a little bit louder. And, and then I say their name. And not only did I get their attention, I got everybody's attention. And everybody looked at me and it went silent. And I was like, hey, I wasn't yelling at you, but if you feel guilty, you can go right back into the church and ask for forgiveness. But all of us, when we hear the voice of Jesus, whether we have accepted him or reject him, you cannot deny the authoritative, powerful voice of Jesus. And so you hear this roaring of many waters voice, and then there's the seven stars that are in his right hand, and he tells us these are the angels of the seven churches, which is another area where we have to wonder, okay, what, what are these angels? Are they one literal angels? That's, that's one idea. Second idea is that they're a prevailing spirit of each church. Number two, or three, is it should be the ideal of what the church should be. Because all of them, we know, are kind of missing the mark a couple places, but this is the ideal of what it should be. Number four is these are, he's referencing the angels of the churches as the pastor or the ministers that are in charge of these congregations. And then the last one is a reference just to the people that would have came to Patmos, received the letter from John, and then taken it to these seven churches to be read. If you're walking through and you see how Jesus is addressing the angel of the church, and we look at the New Testament and what is consistent in its uh, exegesis and, and understanding of how words are used, the word angel is, is used many times referencing men. And the word angel just means messenger. And so when you put everything together, I really do think he's talking to the pastors, and the ministers, those that are in leading of those actual churches there. Because he's talking about issues in the church. And God will work through the authority that he has set up. So if there's an issue in Calvary, guess who all has to handle that? Jerron. Exactly, right? <laughs> all complaint cards go to him. So if you're ever struggling with something at Calvary, to send an email to Jerron at CC. No, no, I'm teasing. I used to joke with my kids when I was a youth pastor, they'd ask me questions about the church, and I would say, the questions you're asking in my pay grade, buddy. That's above my pay grade. I don't know. And then when we moved here, I tried that line on the kids. They were asking me something, and I said, hey, questions you're asking my pay grade. And they said, no, no, Dad. Questions we're asking your pay grade. <laughs> it's like, so even my kids get it. No, the buck stops with you. That if there is issues in the church, you're going to be addressed for that. And I think the New Testament is consistent with that that pastors are going to be held to a stricter judgment for how they lead their congregations. So shape up, okay? I don't want to get a bad report. I don't want to get a word from the Lord here that's not going to be good. I don't want to have to stand before him one day and be like, hey, we need to talk about that Donald P. character, right? <laughs> like, no, that, that was the one saint that I had out of the... No, it's him. And so the seven stars, I think, are a reference to the, the human... Uh, agents that were serving in those churches, right? And, and, and just a little bit of doctrine, a little bit of theology, small little rabbit trail. Why I don't think they're real angels is we don't become angels when we pass away. And I know that's against a lot of Hollywood, but if you're going to Hollywood for your theology, we have bigger issues that we need to talk about, right? Okay, we, we don't get wings. I know that sounds cool. Like I've had that dream where I got wings. I could like fly anywhere that I wanted, like a little Peter Pan. That's... 
that's Hollywood, that's not scripture, because think, uh, scripture tells us that angels are going to be placed under us, that our position as redeemed humanity, putting our faith and our trust in Christ, that we are in heaven, we're going to judge angels, that our position is higher than that of angels. And so in God's sovereign design, we're not going to become angels and become lower. He has a higher position for us, right? Now, does that mean I'm going to walk through a cemetery and every time you see, oh, my angel, I'm going to scratch it out? No, I'm not going to do that. But just understanding the fullness of the New Testament, what the reference to these are the pastors and the leaders. And then you have this two-edged sword that is coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And this is, we understand, the spoken and written word of Christ. And the word here for sword is not the same one that's used in Hebrews where it says uh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's actually a reference to like a small kind of dagger. But here, this is a reference to one of those like long Roman swords, like a weapon of mass destruction. Even Paul talks about that, that that Roman soldier, he doesn't carry that sword for nothing. He carries it to bring judgment swiftly and quickly that he's going to bring execution, that it's not something that he's going to just be hacking away for a while. It's going to cut, and it's going to cut quick and deep. But in the hands of the Lord, think about it, a sword which can be absolutely destructive in the hands of the Lord can even be a scalpel for health and for growth, even for us. And as that cancer survivor, I understand that that the most loving thing that a doctor did to me was cut me wide open and remove the thing that was killing me. And the same for us in our spiritual walk, that we allow the word of God to cut us open and to remove the sin that is killing us, that is separating us spiritually from the Lord. So not just for our salvation, but even in our sanctification, that God is still doing a work in us. We might say it that way. It's a surgical work, that he sees something in us. I don't want that. And he's going to remove it from us. It's through the spoken, written word of God. And then, and then John says, I see his face. And it's like the sun in full strength, which is a reference to his holiness and his righteousness. And you would not be amiss. If you were thinking, that sounds like almost what John would have seen at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. That would be correct. That would be a good connection to make between those two. And so seeing Jesus Christ in his messianic office, like he is the Messiah, his role as judge, and that sometimes is really hard because we love the Jesus that just sits on grassy hills and pets, you know, soft little sheep. And he's got long, soft brown hair and blue eyes and he's white just like me. And like, that's my Jesus. And we're like, that ain't Jesus, right? We love that view of him. And when we talk about Jesus is judge, a lot of times we struggle with that. No, I, I want this Jesus, but we have to understand, in, in this messianic office, this role as judge, this is key to understanding Revelation. That the whole book is about, like what we talked about last week, the problem of evil. Is God just going to allow evil to continue on in our world and let, let it go unchecked and never punished? Could God be just to do that? I mean, later in the book, we'll read about there are the martyrs that sit under the throne and they cry out to the Lord seeking vengeance for their blood, that they were killed for their faith. Could you imagine if the Lord is just hearing this and says, you know, I'm really not going to do anything about it. Sorry. Sorry you gave your life for me. Here's a cookie. Hope you feel better. No. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, that he will shore this up, that he's not going to continually let evil just exist. He's patiently enduring it. Why? Because even now, people are coming to a saving relationship with Christ. But he is the judge, and he's going to carry out his judgment on the unrighteous. And that is key to understanding the book of Revelation, that his judgment on the unrighteous at the same time for us as believers that have put our faith and our trust in Christ, it's a comfort to us. I'm comforted by God carrying out his wrath and judgment on evil in this world. Because think, like David wrote in Psalm 51 when he got caught in his sin because he was knocking boots with Bathsheba, right? And he gets caught in his sin and he writes this psalm of repentance to the Lord. What does he say? I have sinned against you and you alone. And so every act of evil and of sin and debauchery and depravity, it's an attack on the character of God and God alone. This is his battle, He has saved us and redeemed us from it. Who are we to shake our hand at God and say, hey, and be easy on them as they've just absolutely obliterated your character. That the very creation that you breathed life into deny you and attack you. And when we read about the cross and we read how bloody and excruciating the cross was, this is vindication for the Lord. That he is not going to allow evil to continue on. And it's a comfort to us. Like, think of the worst criminal you could think of. Like, the worst pedophilia, horrible person. That it, I mean, the worst atrocities that man could commit on earth. If that person was arrested, condemned, judgment put upon them, we would celebrate that. That evil was restrained and stopped. That victims were free It was something that would bring comfort to us. And it's the same thing, except now we're on a divine, eternal level that God has done, allowing evil to continue on, but he's going to bring that judgment. But if you go back and you look at the description of who Jesus is, who else is worthy, as we'll talk about, to open the scroll? Who's worthy to be able to do that? Him, who has this high rank of dignity, who is complete wisdom and purity, who has this piercing judgment and this omniscient understanding. Like there's nothing on earth that God does not know about. Nobody is getting away with sin and murder. That he has full understanding. He is absolute purity, strength, stability, authority, powerful, irresistible, and it's by his word that he's going to execute this judgment. That this is not our battle. This is not our fight to win. This is the Lord's battle. And so we, understanding that he is going to be judged, and there's going to be quite a few chapters that we're going to walk through that we're going to see how God is going to execute his judgment on this unrighteous world. And it is a comfort and a hope to us. Why? Because he is absolutely sovereign and in control. That there is nothing that is going to happen as we read through these books showing us the things that are to take place that is outside of his control. And they all will perfectly match up with his character and attributes of who God is. That he will never lose any aspect of his love, his grace, his mercy as he handles the evil and the unrighteousness in this world.
And then in verse 17, we hear where John says, I'm, I'm falling at his feet. And Jesus walks up. He puts his hand on him. He says, fear not, I am. Which we know is a, a very clear reference back to Exodus 3 that, that Jesus is showing that he is Yahweh. I am the first and the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. It stresses that eternal sovereignty of God. And he presents himself as that living, resurrected one. That Jesus has absolute authority over death in Hades. So even for us, it's a comfort in Christ, knowing that he has authority over death. That's where we as believers can laugh at death and say, where is your victory? Where is your sting? I'm following the Lord that holds the keys to death. That's why we don't have to walk in fear anymore. Why? Because he who loves us. The spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead, that same spirit lives in us. That same spirit wrote the word of God and is continuing to reveal God's plan and his will for our lives. And so walking in fear of this world is not something that we are called to do, but it is a freedom from fear that we get to walk in this same stability, holiness, and wholeness of Christ. And so he tells them to write down the things that you have seen. And this is what I love. The very first revelation that John gets, he hears this and he turns. And what does he see? Christ ministering amongst lampstands, which is a reference to the whole church. So we, we talk about revelation. We think about all those really crazy things that we're going to be studying. But what's the first thing that we see? We see a priest ministering in the sanctuary. He's ministering among the church. So one of the duties of the Old Testament priest was to tend the golden lampstand in the tabernacle, right? And so every day, this Old Testament priest, he'd have to fill the lamps with oil. He'd have to clean out any soot. He would trim the wicks up. And he had to closely inspect and care for the lamps so that they would continually burn before the Lord. So that lampstand in the temple or the tabernacle, it never went out. It never stopped. The light was always shining, the light was always shining. Understand the reference. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and we are called to reflect that. And so the light, it doesn't come from the lampstands, but the oil lamp that sits on them. And so the lampstand is a beautiful picture of us, the church. We do not just produce the light. Light does not come from us. We simply display the light of Christ to the world around us. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. Don't hide it under a basket. Let your light shine. We all know that little song. This little light of mine. Keep going. Don't stop it. We got a good thing going. We're going to let it shine. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our trials and our affliction, in the midst of the troubles of this life, a couple things. Look at the purpose of it. God is doing a work in your life. There is no other thing that God will use more than suffering, pain, affliction, than to create in us, to refine us, to be like him. Think of in the book of James, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's a silversmith term. 
the testing of your faith. So they would take a, a hunk of raw silver and they would boil it up and the impurities would rise to the top. And that silversmith would scrape the impurities off and then he would let that hunk of silver, yep, we are hunks of silver, amen, and he would let it cool down. Then he'd heat it back up again and more impurities would rise and he would scrape those impurities off and then he'd let it cool down. And he would keep doing that process and he knew that he had pure silver when he could look down at it and see his reflection in the silver. God is heating up your life. He is bringing and allowing the suffering, these trials, this affliction. Why? Because he wants the impurities of anxiety, lack of faith, doubt, anger, bitterness. He wants to scrape those impurities off of your life. Then he's going to cool your life down. And then you're going to go right back into the storm. He's going to heat it back up. Why? Because there's still some impurities in our life that he wants to bring to the surface, and he's going to scrape them off through his grace and his forgiveness. And he's going to keep doing this in our lives until when? Until he sees us. Until he sees himself in us. And so don't ask the Lord to remove the very thing that he's using to create you to be in the image of him. The question isn't, Lord, why is there so much suffering for your church? Ask the question, Lord, why isn't there more? That if we truly, as the body of Christ, want to be like Jesus in this world, that we want to be his hands and his feet and his heart, understand the road that Jesus walked to provide salvation to us. It's the same road of affliction, persecution, and sacrifice. And so in the midst of all of this suffering, this persecution, the trials, the tribulation, where does our strength come from? Where does our perseverance come from? Where does our hope come from? Think of this priest ministering among the lampstands. Our sovereign Lord Jesus, he fills us. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. And so just as this Old Testament priest would fill the lamp with oil, the oil is absolutely a sign, a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so he fills us with the Spirit, and then he cleanses us. He gets all the soot and the gunk and the crap out of our lives, right? 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness, a little unrighteousness, all unrighteousness that he might want to clean up your life. And then he prunes us. He's trimming the wicks in our life, right? John 15, 2, every branch that be does bear fruit, he prunes. He doesn't prune a branch that doesn't bear fruit. He cuts that one off and he throws it out. But the branch that's bearing fruit in your life, why is God pruning my life? I'm trying to live for him. I see some fruit in my life. Why is he pruning? Because all he wants is more fruit from you. That he wants you to be in the fullness of your potential of what it means to walk with Jesus. He wants the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit in your lives. And so he's going to prune us. Does that sound fun? When's the last time you ran to the Lord and be like, hey, you haven't done much pruning here, buddy. Like, I got a lot of growth going on here. Like, you could, you, you could trim a little on here and back down here. And if you could, like, chisel right there, that'd be awesome. No. We got to let the Lord prune us. And then he inspects us. You turn to Psalms. Psalm 139. the very end, Psalm 139, verse 23 and verse 24, the psalmist writes, search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So many times in church, we talk about searching for the Lord and the things that he's doing in our life and amen, and we should. But when's the last time that we laid our heart and our mind before the Lord and said, search me. And if you find anything in me that is not from you, cut it out of my life. Inspect me. Look at me. Instead of hiding our sin and keeping things from the Lord, what if we laid our lives bare before him and say, search and know me? That if there's anything that is keeping me from you, keeping me from the fullness and the abundant life in Christ, search me, know me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. And then lastly, that Old Testament priest, as he's caring for those lamps in the temple or the tabernacle, he had very careful care for them. It's not something that he did flippantly. It's not something like, oh, I just got to do it and get it done real quick. Like we've all had that high school job that we, like we were the least passionate person about the tasks that were at hand. Like mop the floor, be like, yeah, right. I'm not even going to use water. You know what I mean? Right? <laughs> okay, maybe that's just me. Pray for me. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Bunch of liars. He cares for us. First Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares upon him that there's nothing too big, nothing too small. That I would actually say, if, if we only run to the Lord on the big things in our life, it shows the low view of God that we have. But if we will run to the Lord in everything, it actually shows the high view of God that we have for our lives. Are people gonna think we're weird? Yeah, they already do. It might as well be for a good reason, and that's loving Jesus to run to the Lord in that suffering, in that persecution, in those trials, those tribulations, no matter how small or big. Why? Because of who you are? No. He cares for you. The same God that we just read about in the description that John gives us of this revelation, this God cares for you. And he wants to fill you with the spirit. He wants to cleanse you from unrighteousness. He wants to prune so that your life would be fruitful. He wants to inspect your heart and your mind so that he could lead you in the way of everlasting. Why? Because he loves you. That's the first revelation that God gives John on the island of Patmos. That is the lens and the view that we will continually take through the rest of the book. The God that loves us and gave himself for us, that was resurrected to lead us. This is the God that we love and that we follow.